Our next case takes us to Suffolk. We followed the dogs up the ditch, and as I walked past, I thought that was a shock mannequin to start with. What could you see? All of that. There will be a person out there who knows the answer to this. Hello, and welcome back to Unfinished with me, Tom Bristow. In the first episode, we explored what happened the day Jeanette went missing and how she was found 16 days later by two rabbit hunters in a ditch in Suffolk, a county she had never visited and had no links to. I left you with some questions at the end of that episode, and today we'll look at answers. We'll start by exploring how the police investigation unfolded, and we'll hopefully fill in some of the gaps between February the 2nd when she left her local, the Loughborough Hotel in Brixton at around 7.15pm, and the discovery of her decomposed and partially dressed corpse on February the 18th. It took a couple of days for police to work out who the woman in the ditch was. And as we heard from the lead investigator in this case in the first episode, Detective Chief Superintendent John Saunders, the pathologist also had to go back and review his findings to establish that Jeanette had two injuries. The strangle marks around her neck, which killed her, and a blow to her head. The head injury was around 48 hours old by the time of her death. The injury was severe enough to contribute to her death, but it was the strangulation which ultimately killed Jeanette. Police also believed that the semi-clothed state of her body suggested sexual activity before she died. So her body offered them initial clues. She had been knocked unconscious around two days before being killed, and further violence was suggested by her clothing. But it was the things missing from her body which offered police their greatest hope of finding the killer. A lot of Jean's possessions haven't been found, the coat, the stiletto, purse very much like this, of course that very distinctive wreath that she brought in, yes. in Brixton, it might have been dumped somewhere, and jewellery of which this is an imitation, this uh, ring with uh, a dark stone and imitation diamonds. This looks like it's got a sovereign in the, in the middle of it, this, uh, this bracelet. Yes, it has with a Britannia sovereign with the Queen's head on the other side, it's a gold 22 carat uh, gate bracelet. Okay, and there are two plain gold rings, and obviously yes. if uh, a jeweller or someone else has been offered that as a, as a group, it's, it's, it's pretty distinctive, isn't it? Yes, they may well have gone to a jeweller, a dealer, or a pawnbroker. That is John Saunders' opinion for information on the British television show Crime Watch, being interviewed by presenter Nick Ross in May 1989. John Saunders said at the time, the greatest possible lead would be the recovery of her personal property. In short, she left the pub with lots of items which have never been found. Remember, Jeanette and Barry went to a florist during their drinking session to pick up a wreath with red and white flowers. They then returned to the pub and left for good another hour later. When she was last seen, she was walking down the street holding that wreath. Her coat was also missing. It was maroon coloured, plain wool, knee length with buttons up to the neck. Then there were her shoes, black, size 5 heels. Her purse, rings and bracelet have also never been found. John Saunders and his colleague, a detective called John Gerald, pinpointed four areas to focus on. The first two were what happened to her coat, shoes, bracelet, purse and two rings. The second was what happened to her reef. Here is John speaking to me 30 years later about why he believes the reef is still so important. It was her intention she collected uh, the funeral reef from her florists with a view to taking it to the funeral of a friend. One would perhaps, I, I think again it comes back to the difference in uh, the geographical areas. If you walk down the street in Suffolk carrying a wreath, people would talk to you first of all and inquire or sympathise with you. People would note 
that they'd seen somebody carrying a wreath, it would probably form the basis of conversation uh, at mealtime in the evening with your, with your family. And then if there was an appeal that went out subsequently to say, did you see a lady carrying a wreath? In Suffolk, I would expect people to uh, get on the phone straight away to us. That wasn't the case in Brixton. And again, one has to remember that in a busy urban area, uh, life passes by very quickly and all manner of things occur and people don't observe what we would think is the obvious. You can see pictures of what these missing items look like on the Eastern Daily Press website. We also know Jeanette had a significant amount of money in her purse. Her boyfriend Barry had given her some of his redundancy pay. Her missing jewellery could also point to this being a robbery which went wrong. Could someone have seen her in the pub getting the money from Barry and then jumped her when she left? She was drunk and struggling to walk according to a witness. So how much of a fight could she have put up? That struggle could also explain the blow to her head. We also know from speaking to local historian Alan in the first episode that muggins were common in Brixton at the time and there were plenty of areas for people to lie in wait in what was a quiet street around the pub. There are, however, no reports of screaming and if you mugged someone and hit them around the head, why not just leave them? Why take them to a field 120 miles away? And why also take their shoes, coat and a funeral wreath? Worthless items. The killer took a big risk by taking these objects. They could be used as evidence to trace them. So surely you wouldn't take them unless you had no other choice. Here is John again. I think, uh, again, keeping the open mind, there are possibilities that she did go off with somebody that she knew. And if that's the case, then someone's uh, spouse or partner may well be able to uh, provide the answer to it. It could be that, sadly, in the inebriated state that she was, that she fell as easy prey to somebody else who abducted her or that she went willingly with somebody else who offered her a lift home or something like that. That's a possibility. I think the likelihood that she was attacked by a stranger on the street and then bundled into a vehicle is less likely. The next two areas John pinpointed could be the case's biggest leads or they could be duds, so let's explore them more fully to working out. The two biggest questions puzzling detectives were, how did Jeanette make the journey to Suffolk and was she alive or dead when it was made? They had two promising leads from the Suffolk end of their inquiries, which they hoped would unlock this mystery. A dark coloured hire van was spotted on February the 5th, so three days after Jeanette went missing, on a bridle path called Middle Barn Lane close to where her body was found. It was seen by two locals. It had a 01 phone number on it in white lettering. That was the London dialing code at the time. The witnesses described it as being a dark blue or dark green transit type vehicle with two smoked glass windows in the rear, meaning nobody could see in. The next morning, on February the 6th, a white saloon car was seen by a worker on the Isle of Stradbrook's estate called Leslie Fairs. He saw two people we had never seen before in the car including a woman, matching Jeanette's description, sitting in the passenger seat. It was her, he told the Eastern Daily Press at the time. There are no two ways about it. I particularly noticed her because I hadn't seen her before. Then, at around 11.30am, so two hours after Leslie saw the car, a resident heard screaming near a place called Church Farm, 400 yards from where Jeanette was found. The screaming was drowned out by music. We're going to borrow here a bit from the Crime Watch reconstruction of the case. Leslie Fairs, an estate worker, saw a stranger's car drive through Park Farm. I was uh, mixing up cattle food 
and uh, heard the car come into the farmyard. I hadn't ever seen the car nor the two people in the car before, so uh, I just walked out of the building further to get a better view as I disappeared into the distance into the estate. Two hours on at Church Farm, another resident was 400 yards from where Jean would later be discovered. By the time his wife had come down, both the screaming and the music had stopped. We don't know for sure if the sighting of the white saloon car and screaming are linked, or if they have anything to do with Jeanette's disappearance. John and his detectives did all they could to trace both the van and the car, but they got nowhere. The, uh, the, the van itself was, uh, as you say, dark, uh, of a dark colour. That was seen on the 5th of February near the scene believed to have uh, the word hire on it uh, and also perhaps the prefix zero 01. And what came of that lead? Several calls came in to us but nothing, uh, all of which were followed up but uh, nothing materialised and we were not able to identify the, the, uh, the van or its owner or any reason for a van being in that area. Yeah, I mean we're talking about an incredibly sort of not necessarily isolated spot, but certainly a rural spot. I mean, there's no need for a hire van from London to be driving down in, into that estate. Uh, no, the, it would be unexpected that one would appear there. And then the next day on the 6th of February, that's when an, a different estate worker sees a car, a saloon car, driving through. And then a separate witness, an hour or two later, hears screams and, and loud music being played. Yes, yeah. yes. And again, all we have is uh, just precisely that, the, uh, the, the, the noise of the music and uh, screams being heard, but uh, nothing further in terms of information as to uh, what that may have been attributed to. Um, I mean, you don't even know if it came from that car, do you? Because no. it could have been two separate... No, no. And, uh, and this, is, this is, again, the importance, even after 30 years of keeping an open mind... It could be that one or other of those vehicles were connected with the incidents. Uh, it could be that neither of them were. Yeah. Um, but you have to... Um, and we did pursue as, as far as we could um, both those vehicles in particular. I think of these two sightings, Jeanette was far more likely to have been in the van than the car. A kidder would hardly want to bring attention to themselves by playing loud music or putting his victim in a passenger seat. We also know Jeanette had a severe head injury before being strangled and dumped which would suggest she would not be sitting up in a passenger seat. The van the day before is a much more likely option. No one can see in it. It gives a way to hide the body, and it is linked back to London from the dialing code on the side of it. But the witness did not see the full phone number. So that would mean Jeanette was dumped on February the 5th. If we take that as a starting point and work backwards, that's three nights and three days after she was last seen, that would suggest things turned sour on the 3rd, the day she was meant to go to her friend's funeral. The fact she doesn't show up at the funeral would also suggest things went wrong on that day. She went to the effort of buying a reef, so she clearly had every intention of going. But the fact she doesn't suggests by that point she's either been kept against her will or has been knocked out. With the sightings of those vehicles in mind, police focused on how she could have made the journey from South London. 
you've got a long distance up to Suffolk, so something could have happened en route to Suffolk, or it could have happened actually at Wangford. So uh, uh, all manner of uh, options are open there. Yeah. And why Suffolk and why Wangford? It's it's an unanswered question. There was nothing at the end of the day that could reliably say that uh, there was a connection with Suffolk. Sizeable power station was something that was uh, on the go at the time in terms of its construction. So there were people probably who'd come from London who would have worked there and may have been familiar with the area. Suffolk is an attractive county for holiday makers, so it could have been somebody who'd been to Suffolk before. It could even have been a worker who uh, travelled from London uh, on delivery type of work and um, was familiar with the area, or it could be absolutely random and somebody thinking, I've got to get as far away as possible. The other possible link between Suffolk and South London was football. Crystal Palace was playing away at Ipswich Town on Saturday, February the 4th, which would mean hundreds of South London football fans were travelling up the A12 to the county town of Suffolk. It was a theory put forward at the time. So that is the information police got from the Suffolk side of their investigation. But have any chance of solving this, they needed to work out what happened to Jeanette immediately after she left her local. So off they went to Brixton. Here in Jeanette's home patch of South London, police were initially hopeful. They set up the first ever computer link between the Metropolitan Police and a provincial force to exchange their findings and information. But ultimately, they got even less information in London than in Suffolk. The response to the TV appeal on Crime Watch was disappointing. It sparked several calls, but they led to nothing. Here is John. How much information were you getting at either end about um, what had happened to Jeanette? That was probably uh, the most disappointing element of it. From the Brixton end, if I start with that, uh, there was very little information that came in from the general public there and uh, most of the information that came in was generated by the police inquiries themselves. So, for example, the need to track down uh, everybody who was known to have frequented the Loughborough Arms. And she was uh, a regular visitor to that pub. Uh, So it was a case of uh, trying to uh, establish her movements, to uh, contact people who knew her, who may have been casual acquaintances, who may have visited the Loughborough Arms or in fact other places that she was known to frequent as well. So the the generation of inquiries was very much instigated by the police themselves down at the Brixton end. Um, at the Wangford end and in Suffolk um, it was very much uh, a consequence of uh, members of the public. Once we'd put out an appeal, particularly for a couple of vehicles, we were getting calls back in from the public in Suffolk if something like this happened to somebody who would be well known in the community um, a community would be very keen to uh, uh, transfer information down in um, the Brixton end sadly I don't think everybody felt that way. So how did Jeanette disappear without anyone reporting it to police for a week? If after she left the Loughborough at 7.15 she went drinking with someone she knew she would have surely been spotted by a witness in another pub. She wasn't. Nobody reports seeing her in Brixton again, suggesting she left the area at around that time, probably driven out in a vehicle. The last witness who saw her live says she saw her get into the car of her boyfriend, Barry Coleman, 
but Barry says Jeanette didn't get into his car and instead he saw her walking off down the road alone. This killing, I believe, is well planned. If the London hire van was used to dump her body in Suffolk, then someone has gone to the trouble of getting a van and disposing of her possessions. The killer is also either very lucky in that nobody reports Jeanette missing for a week, or he knows her. He knows she's a big drinker and no one will report her missing because she's known to go on drinking binges. That is one of the remarkable things about this case. Nobody raises the alarm for so long. Nobody reports her missing when she doesn't show at her friend's funeral on the 3rd. Barry, who lived in Surrey with his wife, says he doesn't realise she's missing until Tuesday, February the 7th, when he calls around her home to collect the money he lent her in the Loughborough. But it is still another two days before her ex-husband Paul, who lived with her, reports her missing to the police. Paul later explains at her inquest why he waited so long to report her missing. It was not unusual for her to stay out all night, so I was not immediately worried. I went into the Loughborough nearly every night to see if she was there or to find out something, but the first I knew about her body being found was when the police came round to tell me. Her son Michael also tells the inquest, we didn't have any idea where she was, but thought she was with Mr Coleman. So if the Kemptons thought Jeanette was with Mr Coleman, why didn't they tell police on January the 7th when Barry Coleman went round and found she wasn't there? Perhaps nobody was in the house or Barry didn't speak to anyone. Barry would end up going to police in late February after seeing press reports about the discovery of Jeanette's body. He says he drove to Brixton Police Station and told them all he knew. He later told the inquest, I went because I knew I had been with her the night she had disappeared. He also spoke of their relationship, which he had until that point kept secret from his wife, saying, I never moved in with her because I knew that other men who moved in didn't last long and I had a good home with my wife. My wife blew her top when I told her about the affair after Jeanette's body had been discovered. All this gives the killer a huge advantage. It means the police are 16 days behind with their investigation from the start. A point not lost on the man whose job it is to now solve this case. Detective Inspector Andy Guy leads the team looking at the unsolved crimes in Suffolk. Obviously you're very experienced in, in looking at cold cases. Why, why do you think this one has, has remained unresolved for, for 30 years? Firstly because um, Jeanette didn't come locally, she didn't live locally. She's from the Brixton area in London. There's a big um, Irish community uh, that didn't have a good rapport with the local police. So there's several different um, sort of issues that, that made this more difficult than normal. So normally, you know, you'd have a, a deposition site where bodies found, and you'd also have a murder scene where the person was murdered, often they're the same place, but they can be different places. Now with Jeanette, we only ever had the deposition site, and you know, the investigation was what 16 days behind a disappearance. So I think all of those things combined have made it quite difficult. We'll be hearing a lot more from Andy in the next episode. The detective from the time, John Saunders, had 40 officers working on this. They ended up taking 400 statements and making 3,500 inquiries. But for all those efforts, just one arrest was made. And that was one of the most bizarre aspects of this whole case. In this story, there is another victim, a man called Anthony Gilby. In Wangford and the surrounding towns, Gilby's name was falsely linked with the murder of Jeanette Kepton because of a very strange arrest. Even today, when I mention the murder to Kevin Block, who found the body, he still mentions Gilby's name. Gilby was simply a man in the wrong place at the wrong time. On March 9th, 1989, a visit to a public toilet in the North Suffolk town of Beckles somehow ended with police accusing Gilby of murder. What Gilby didn't know when he entered the toilet cubicle was that he was being watched, watched by two police officers. The policemen were monitoring the toilet from the rafters above. 
and as Gilby stayed in the cubicle longer and longer, they grew more and more suspicious. Finally, they hammered on the cubicle door, accusing him of gross indecency and conduct likely to cause a breach of the peace, and arrested him. Now what the police officers didn't know, and what no one seemed to ask, was why Gilby had taken so long in the toilet. The answer is simple and tragic rather than indecent. Gilby had undergone two operations for cancer of the bladder, which meant he spent longer in the lavatory than the average man. However, this wasn't the only thing which aroused suspicion from police. Gilby also suffered from thrombosis in his legs and wore surgical stockings to improve his circulation. As a practical solution to keep his stockings from falling down, he wore a corset with shoulder straps. The best way, he said, to keep his socks up. He was taken in for questioning, during which police asked him to drop his trousers, and he revealed the corset and stockings beneath. Anthony Gilby has since died, but here is what he recalled in an interview with the Independent newspaper in the early 1990s, read by my colleague Tony. There were a lot of plainclothes policemen there who obviously thought it was a most tremendous lark. After a while I thought, for I'm nothing if not current in my vernacular, I'm being fitted up here. I thought, this can't go on much longer. Someone's going to come along in a minute and say, I'm most awfully sorry, understandable mistake. There you were, rigged out like Mae West, but you go with our apologies. Gilby was eccentric rather than guilty, but he was taken to a police cell and interviewed and asked to sign a statement admitting to a variety of indecent acts the officers claimed to have observed. He refused and asked to talk to a solicitor who advised him to tell the truth and everything would be all right. Gilby was questioned further, this time alone, before being placed back in his cell. Here is what he remembers happening next. He had a suit three sizes too tight, but I wasn't in a position to make sartorial judgments. Then he said, I'm arresting you on suspicion of murdering Jeanette Kempton. Everything else had been awful but credible. At that point, it moved from a reality into fantasy. To be locked up, not able to see out, it is a relief to see other human beings, no matter how disagreeable, even in an interview room. You don't want to be put back in that black hole. And they play on it. I always used to think that people who confessed and withdrawn their confessions were suspect. Don't you? Well, I've had a leper's squint into that kind of thing. You do want to tell them what they want to hear. The papers reported the arrest on March 10th without naming Gilby. Perhaps police were just desperate to give the public some good news in the case. Arrest made in Hunt for Killer was the headline in the Eastern Daily Press. Or perhaps it was simply a tactic to pressure Gilby into admitting other offences. But it didn't work. Gilby did not confess, and at 1am he was released by police on bail. He had been charged with gross indecency, contact likely to cause breach of the peace, and murder. He was charged despite there not being a single piece of evidence linking him to Jeanette or the murder. The murder charge was quickly dropped the next day, but the other two stuck, and Gilby's reputation in the Suffolk village fell as rumours multiplied. When the case for gross indecency appeared before Ipswich Crown Court in 1990, it fell apart. The judge told the jury the police's evidence was unreliable and the case was dropped. And in 1992, the High Court ordered Suffolk Police to pay £85,000 in damages to Gilby, plus an unreserved apology. Anthony Gilby's wife, Lady Penelope, still lives in Wangford. We approached her as part of this, but the retired church warden, who was now in her late 80s, said she couldn't remember the period well. This was not the finest hour for Suffolk Police, and it was a low point in the investigation, so I decided to ask John about it in our interview. I read that there was one arrest made. Um, there was an article in The Independent of a man called Anthony Gilby. 
Do you remember that at all? Um, yes, I, I can remember um, particular situations, but um, uh, again, I would go back to saying that um, people who were interviewed, there was nothing, um, yeah, there was nothing, nothing further. Yeah, he was, he was sort of released the next day and he ended up suing the Suffolk police. Uh, yes, I can remember that as well, yes. <laughs> do you, do, do you, were you there at when he was arrested? Um, I've, I've got to sound hazy on this, not uh, um, because uh, there's anything to conceal. Uh, I wasn't involved at all in that uh, arrest. In the next episode, we'll look at suspects, including a possible link to one of England's most notorious serial killers. And we'll be speaking to the detective currently in charge of this case. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished with me, Tom Bristow. If you found it interesting, please share and recommend it with friends and leave us a review and rating on iTunes. You can also find out more about this case on the Eastern Daily Press website. That's www.edp24.co.uk and tap in on the Unfinished Podcast tab at the top of the homepage. Until next week, goodbye.